This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our monthly podcast of Nextworks. It's the first one of the new year, so we're super excited that we're back. We, we already had messages online, guys. I don't know if you saw it, of some people that were worried that we would not come back in 2023. Geraldine, I, we saw your message online that you were panicking a little bit, so nothing to worry about. We are back, and every month in 2023, we're going to share our insights about innovation strategy, customer experience, China, human resources, the whole shebang. So we're very excited to be back. And in this first episode in 23, I am here with Julie Vance de Vos. Hey, Julie. Morning. I'm here with Pascal Coppens, our Chinaman. Thanks, Steve. And then Peter Hinzen, of course. Hey, Peter. Hello. How are you guys? Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is it the last day that we can say that? We're making this recording the 16th of January, so... I think the date has passed. It depends on cultural okay. uh, preferences. Yeah, yeah. Well, not for me. It's still five more oh, days. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah, Chinese yeah, yeah, New course. Year. Yeah. Okay, so, okay. Uh, the year of the rabbit, by the way. And what does that mean, the year so of the rabbit? we're going to have to run fast. What, what does that mean? Fast? It's fast change? Well, it's fast. It's it's agile. It's everything about change. And, and it's quite positive compared to... Uh, to others. Ah, I always associate yeah, yeah. a rabbit with being scared, a scared rabbit, but maybe yeah. that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a water rabbit, so that's a different thing. But okay, we won't say Happy New Year anymore. It's it's a cultural thing, as Peter said. I'm the guy that uh, in our family, you know, the Christmas tree is still there and probably will be for another three weeks because we forget to put it down. So yeah. Peter Happy keeps it until Easter. <laughs> I try, we try. <laughs> <laughs> I did it once until March. Okay, let's get into the action of Radar. I would like to start with the good and the ugly of customer experience. So two stories that I recently saw that one I thought was really fun and the other one was like the complete meltdown of your reputation in customer experience. The first one, the good one, is the Louvre in Paris. They have a new philosophy that is something that you don't hear and see that much. But in the Louvre, they decided to cut down on the amount of people that can enter the museum on a daily basis to make sure that the customer experience improves. Uh, like everyone knows when you go to the Louvre, Julie, what is the one thing you want to see? The Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa. And the lines are very long. And then it's like in Disneyland, you have these lines, you have to wait, and then you have a picture moment. And after 20 seconds, they tell you to leave. So they want to cut down on the waiting times to improve customer experience. And it's something that you don't hear that often eh? in times where profit maximization and getting growth in the number of people that visit, you know, these experiences and tourist attractions. This is the first time that I really hear someone after COVID and post-COVID that they're saying we're going to cut down on the number of visitors to improve customer experience. So I thought that was a, a nice initiative. I would like to learn more about that if we, if we find some new information about that. So that was the good of customer experience. And then the ugly I don't know, guys, if you saw this story. It's from Hertz, car rental company. I've used them several times, but after the news that I saw last week, I will never, ever use Hertz again because they have a flaw in their software. And the flaw is like this. Imagine that you rent a car for seven days or for two weeks, and you're on a trip, and you decide, wow, this trip is so cool. I'm going to add three or four days to our road trip. So I'm sending a message to Hertz, an email or WhatsApp, or I'm going to call them to let them know that I would like to keep the car for three or four more days. 
And Hertz confirms that. So you have this friendly employee that says, Stephen, no problem. Uh, we're going to see you three days later. Um, consider it done. But they have a flaw in their system in the US that when you extend your rental time, the software doesn't really understand that. And as a consequence, the car in those extra three days is automatically reported as being stolen. So you can imagine what happens next if you drive around in the US enjoying Arizona from the Grand Canyon, driving to Zion National Park, and you're driving there, and suddenly the police is behind you, they type in your license plate, and then in typical US style, you get pulled over, they pull a gun on you, and they arrest you. So in the last couple of years, there were about 350 Hertz customers that got arrested by the police, got a gun pulled in their face, got handcuffs on, and even 46 of them got arrested and were in jail. And there was even this one person who was in jail for 30 days before they let him out because of you know, the slow administrational process at Hertz that couldn't confirm that the car was not stolen. So talking about a customer experience, this is a new level of customer experience. And this, this happened in the past three years. Two weeks ago or three weeks ago, Hertz had to pay a fine to these customers. I think the total amount was more than $160 million that they had to pay to these customers because they locked them up in jail because they had this flaw in their software system. So if anyone is in doubt, if you need good software to create good customer experience, this is your final piece of evidence that you needed before you put your customers in jail. But I mean, I don't understand why Hertz would not be able to correct that mistake in three years. I mean, first mm -hmm. of all, I mean, it's relatively simple probably to change that code, right? I mean, That's you, my don't, feeling you don't too. have to be yeah. a genius programmer to be able to change that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for me, it's not a, a problem of bad customer experience. It's hugely showing how inadequate the feedback loops are because yeah. you, know, you pick that up, you find it, and then you change it and you correct the problem. And the fact that they have not been able to do that in three years is just a horrible you know, huh? feedback loaf. Unbelievable. And that no one pushes the alarm button internally so the guys were locking up our customers. If that is not creating an urgency, imagine what you need before you get an urgency in that organization. So it shows the culture is not up to speed yet. Let me put that into a question to you, Stephen, because you are the expert on this. I mean, do you actually know percentage-wise, volume-wise, how many of the things that get picked up by you know, bad customer service is actually turned into some sort of a mechanism you know, to change things? I'm, I'm always curious because whenever something isn't right customer service-wise, I will try and do something about it. I will try to you know, give that feedback to a company. But very often when I'm doing that feedback, I'm thinking, you know, why do I even bother? Because it's not going to be picked up anyway. Do you have any idea how many legitimate complaints are actually really listened to by companies and turned into, you know, some sort of an action? I have no idea if there's any evidence on that, any numbers. I've never seen a number that describes that. Maybe there is one out there, but... What I've seen is that it's such a spread. I mean, some companies are 100% into that and others don't really care about that. I think the best example I've ever seen and heard is in the Atlantis Hotel in uh, Dubai. I talked with the CEO of, of that hotel a couple of times. They have this daily routine. 
So every day, and in a hotel, that's seven out of seven, right? Every day, the first hour of the day is the CEO with his key people looking at all, not just the complaints, but all the questions they got the day before, and they split them up in three groups. They say, okay, this is a question that we have a process for. That's okay. Then they have very unique questions that are very personalized. If you want something very specific in your room and you know it, it couldn't create value for other customers, then they're going to try to help that individual customer. But he told me, you know, every single day we get so many complaints or questions that make so much sense for other customers as well that we need to change our processes instantly. And they do that on a daily basis. That speed and that flexibility, you feel that when you go there. And he told me, he said, Stephen, we have 18,000 employees at the Atlantis de Palm Hotel in Dubai, 18,000. And I went there last year just after COVID. And he told me 9,000 of them were hired in the last three, four months, but they are into our system and our thinking because they know my key priority in the morning is looking at questions of customers and figuring out how to solve them. And then you have the other opposite hurts where apparently this doesn't happen. You know that I'm an investor at Hello Customer, right? Um, Hello Customer is an AI tool system that helps you to get customer feedback faster and more personalized and in more detail. And it makes an analysis to highlight the issues that you need to work on and that have the biggest impact on customer satisfaction. What you see is that some companies buy that software and it stays within, let's say, the consumer insights team and, and they make some reports about it and then some actions are taken. Other companies look into that on a monthly basis and say, okay, what are all the action points that we need to take and act upon? So it really, really depends on the culture inside. I think what you need in your organization is a rhythm, maybe a weekly, maybe a monthly, I don't know, but a rhythm to look at it and then define all the actions. And, and the truth is, if I've seen many of these lists of customer feedback, the truth is that in my feeling, my perception, 80, 85% of all those complaints that you get are easy to solve. It's my friction hunting thing. It's very easy to solve. And maybe 15% is complex, but start with the 85% easy to solve and you will have a completely different company and a different culture. Yeah, I, I think it's broader than customer complaints. One of the things that I found fascinating last year, I had the chance to spend some time uh, with the management team of Microsoft. And we were there with a group of European executives. And we had a chance to spend some time with Brad Smith, who is the president of Microsoft, a really, really impressive person. And he told me, that the routine they have at Microsoft with the management team, which is you know 10 plus people, is that they meet every Friday for an entire day wow. and not to go through the classic agenda that typical management teams do, but they focus on 10 topics that they think are really, really important. So it's not just classic agenda with you know numbers and finances, no, 10 topics. And every Friday they talk about one topic really in-depth. But before they start their meeting, from nine o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock in the morning, every Friday, they invite two customers that did not choose for Microsoft for their next project. Wow. And they want to listen to these companies to understand, not to convince them, not to say, you made a mistake, you should go with us. No, 
to really understand why these companies made a conscious decision not to choose from Microsoft. Super. And I found that incredible that the top management team of one of the largest companies in the world spends two hours every Friday listening to people who said, you know what, we don't think you made the cut. You're not the right company to work for. And they said the amount of information we get from that is so incredibly valuable to help us think mm -hmm. about strategy going forward. I thought that was an amazing example of companies is, who really is. do it right. Yeah, absolutely. I love that example. And now that we're talking about Microsoft, Peter, I'm going to make the bridge to another topic that we have. Uh, every year, Bill Gates is like sharing his, his list of favorite books And I know that you're a fan of Bill Gates, and I know that you're a fan of the things he shares. And his number one book last year was How the World Really Works and How to Think About the Speed of Change. And I know you read the book, and a lot of people ask us, guys, can you do some book recommendations? So we thought that in this start of the year that this was a good opportunity for you to share the insights and what you've learned from this book. No, happy to do that. And indeed, I'm, I'm a, a Gates uh, fan, which is kind of strange, you know, with my Apple fascination. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I am an absolute Bill Gates uh, fanatic. I have a lot of respect for what he does, um, a lot of respect for what he's done, and also his incredible capability after that he ran Microsoft, you know, with the broader vision that he has on trying to do something good into the world. And I think he has a number of people that he really relies on. And one of the number one is, you know, the author of this book, How the World Really Works by Václav Smil. And Smil, he's written 40 books. I mean, this is a scientist who is, you know, quite prolific in his writing. He is a scientist, and I read the book over the Christmas period, and it is absolutely fascinating. But I have to warn you, this is not a light reading book. Difficult this is book. a book that is filled with data. <laughs> I have never seen a book so completely filled with data. If you're a data fanatic, you're going to love this book. And the book has zero graphs which is really oh funny. <laughs> I mean, normally you would say, okay, that's really, really boring data, data, data. Let me look at the graph and I'll figure it out. No, this book is filled with statistics, zero, zero illustrations, none, which is really and, fascinating. And how many pages are we talking about? Uh, we're, we're, we're talking, I have the book right here. So we're talking about uh, 300 pages. And I think the um, last 60 pages are all references and links to more <laughs> data. So it's a data, data, data. But what I find fascinating, and the reason that I, I singled out this book, is this is a book that inspired Bill Gates. And I think it inspires Bill Gates to think about his investments and where he's going to put his effort and his energy and where he's going to direct the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And what is interesting about Schmiel is that I don't think he would be my favorite person to sit next to on an 11-hour plane ride to San Francisco. Because I think Schmiel is a you know, deeply, deeply angry person. Yeah? Um, and he's angry because he sees optimism in the world that he thinks is not justified. And that's one of the reasons why he wrote this book. He says, we have to be very careful because the way that we're now thinking about solving the big issues out there, take the environment, You know, take greenhouse emissions. We tend to put a Silicon Valley type optimism into that, and that won't work. That is his main message in the book. Okay. 
So what he does in the book is he takes a look at energy, he takes a look at food, he takes a look at population, and with all sorts of information, tries to figure out how the world really works. And there's two fundamental things in the book. The first is, and it blew my mind, how dependent we are today on fossil fuels. And we intuitively know this. But you know, it is incredible when you see the stats on this, where it's not just the fact that we drive our cars and cars consume a lot of fossil fuel, or that we heat our homes and our homes consume a lot of fossil fuel, but everything that we do actually indirectly has an enormous amount of fossil fuel attached to that. And that dependency is something that he describes at great length in that book. You can say, well, that's pretty depressing because we already know that. I did not know that to that extent. I'll give you one example. Agriculture. I mean, we have to eat every single day, but it is staggering to see how much fossil fuel we consume every single day to put the food on our plates. And that goes from you know, the tractors that you know, plow the field to the fossil fuels necessary to create the fertilizers that we need to put on there, to you know, the heating that we need to do to make sure that tomatoes can actually still grow in the middle of the winter, to the transportation of food. I'll give you one statistic that blew my mind. If you eat one kilogram of tomatoes, which I would not recommend because eating a kilogram of tomatoes is probably not a good idea, but for every single kilogram of tomatoes that are being grown in a heated greenhouse, how much diesel fuel do you think that contains? I mean, just one kilogram of tomatoes, how much diesel is required to actually put that on your plate? Steven. I have no idea. So are we going to do the gambling thing? We're going to do the gambling thing. I would say, thing. and it's going to be more than what you think. So I will say 100 liters. Ah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, this is ten, not ten, good. 10 liters. 10 liters. That would be too much. You can heat your house for that for a while. Thank you, Steven. I have no clue, guys. I have no clue. Can someone else do a guess then? <laughs> I would guess that Pascal is the one that really would, would make a chance to answer that, right? Yeah, I, I have no idea on the energy, but I, I've read once uh, related the amount of water you need. Basically, when you eat one steak or one hamburger, you could shower like 10 or 20 times. So I guess it must be in that same area that uh, it's maybe 10 or 20 days that you could heat your home. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, you, okay. You really need to read the book. I mean, and that was really... We are ruining the experience here. <laughs> it's half a liter of diesel fuel, okay? Yeah, only, only half a liter. <laughs> only half a liter. I mean, think about this. For every kilogram of tomatoes, yeah. you need half a liter of diesel fuel. Can you imagine that every time that you would eat and you put yeah, dinner on your dinner table, you would put the equivalent amount of diesel fuel in a jar on your table and to say, that's what we're consuming to actually put that into our mouths. It is incredible. So the first thing is the incredible amount of dependency we have on fossil fuels. But, you know, I mean, Stephen, if you would write a book, it would be a hundred times more than that. Yeah? But the second thing, which I find fascinating, he says there are four things in the world that are now shaping our reality that we cannot live without. It's cement, it's steel, mm -hmm. it's ammonia, and it's plastics. 
They're and, all made in China. Well, of course, they're not just <laughs> all made in China. Yeah, but oh, you're absolutely right. And India. But what you have, yeah. and India, but what you have is we are completely dependent on cement. I mean, one of the statistics that I found fascinating is that yeah, in the last five years, there has been more cement used in China than you know, during the entire last 100 years in some of the biggest you know, countries in the world. Uh, but cement creates um, a challenge because we cannot live without it, and it requires an enormous amount of energy to make cement. Steel, we cannot build the buildings that we need today or the bridges, and steel requires an enormous amount of energy. The same thing with ammonia. We cannot make fertilizers that could feed 8 billion people without making ammonia, and ammonia requires an enormous amount of energy to actually produce it. And the same thing with plastics. And this is you know, some of the sobering things that come out of this book. He says, we should not make the mistake that because we had an amazing revolution in smartphones and you know, social media in the last 10 years, and we've seen the enormous exponential rise, that we can automatically transpose that into the world of renewables. And I think this is something where we have to be careful because we can get really excited sometimes about, you know, with our techno-optimism and that I think techno-optimism is a big part of what we do, mm -hmm. but we can apply techno-optimism to say, oh, how fast is AI going to have an impact on da-da-da-da-da? But we cannot assume we're going to have the same rates of change in these fundamental you know, four elements, because we cannot just overnight say, oh, you know, let's just go from, you know, our dependency on fossil fuels to renewables in the next decade, because that won't work unless we fundamentally change our way of living. And what he does in the end, and I'll just, you know, end there, he says, there's at this moment, two types of people in the world who are getting too much media attention. They are what they call the catastrophists and the cornucopians. And the cornucopians are the ones that say, the horn of plenty is here, you know, exponential change, everything will come. And, you know, if you remember Singularity University, that was a great example of that, you know, everything will be changed by exponential growth, abundance is here, and cornucopia, why should we worry? And the other is the catastrophists who say, the world is going to end because we can never solve this. He says, I'm a scientist, I'm a realist. There is a middle road in there that we have to understand. If you really want to understand how the world works, then you have to go to the science. And it's, it's something that I want to spend more time on this year and going forward to make sure that we're not just, you know, believing ourselves in the hope that it's going to have an exponential growth and everything is going to be magic and wonderful, but really put the science at the very heart of that. Anyway. And is there also a solution? No, no, Peter? there's no solution. No, that's the big criticism of his book. He says, you know, the, the only thing he says is we have to probably spend more time in the science, we have to double down on the science, but we cannot imagine that the science is going to give us a magical solution. And his main conclusion is that the, most of the people who are now making predictions about our energy transition are hopelessly going to get the timing wrong because it's going to take a lot longer than we thought. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of easy to say we have to change our lifestyle. And if we need so much energy and so much fossil fuel to feed the world, we cannot stop eating. And if the evolution goes slower than what most people predict it will be, then it does sound a little bit like a catastrophe. 
um, if, I, if I hear your story. No, I mean, his main message is that if you really drastically would like to change your way of life, then we can do something faster. But he says, most people will not want to change their way of life. I mean, <laughs> when it. people say we should change our way of life, they always always mean the other people, right? Not themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I also think that when you look at the industries you talk about, steel and, and cement, I mean, this is uh, B2B or a lot of uh, companies that... Uh, Consumers are not aware of what, what is happening in that industry. And so only the governments, in my view, can actually make that transition happening by, by focusing on science, but also focus on making sure that that transition in these industries are happening. And this is what I see in China with Baosteel, for example, and all the, the big steel and all the big cement companies. They're really uh, having a hard time to continue because the government is stepping in. I'm not saying they're doing a perfect job, but I think Sometimes it's the, the industries and the places where you're not seeing it that you have to start uh, because that is where the biggest impact might be. And, and so totally agree. The electrical vehicles is cool. Everybody understands it. But maybe that's not fast enough for the whole transition. And it's, it's, it changes maybe our mindset. But unless the politicians change their mindset, mm -hmm. it's not going to make the impact. And, and so I see a big difference in both China and India. Last time I was in India, they really understood the danger of continuing because they still need to build mm -hmm. that uh, that new country with cement and with steel and with all these things. And they understand early on that they can't just do what China did. And China understands if they don't change it, then basically it's not going to help the world. And so, so interesting things. But I think the government involvement might have to become bigger and bigger to actually sustain just uh, living on this planet and eating tomatoes. And if there's one hope that I have is that more and more politicians will read these types of books because a science-based you know, foundation of this is absolutely crucial. And I think we've mm -hmm. often seen in politics that the science is often very, very far removed from reality. All right. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Peter. Pascal, when we go to China, uh, big news. China is opening up again, but we all hear the stories about major COVID waves where you're not believing the data that China is sharing. We're at the beginning of 2023. What can we expect that this year will happen in China and how should we look at it uh, with our Western eyes? Well, I always put a Chinese lens on the Western eyes, but uh, 8th of January, China actually opened up officially. So that's very, very recent. What it means is simply that uh, after almost three years of COVID bubble that they've lived in, they've actually allowed now to travel to China without going into quarantine. Anyone can go to China, no more quarantine needed. Uh, and this is, of course, fantastic news for everybody who's been waiting for three years, uh, because most of the businesses in the world are related to China one way or another, even if it's just for sourcing. And so you need to go and talk to the people. And so this is actually just a big change. And of course, because it was uh, for three years closed off. The first two years, China did fantastic. Last year, 2022, was a real tragedy, meaning one lockdown after the other, political tensions, I mean, then the protests. I mean, you know, we know all these stories. And then suddenly China decided, Beijing decided in December, okay, let's just open up as fast as we closed it down uh, three years earlier. And suddenly everything's released and nobody could imagine what was happening. And of course, because there was less immunity than we had in the West, I mean, lots of infections. I mean, cities like Beijing, where I have friends, or Shanghai, I mean, within two weeks' time, there was like 70% of the population of a 20 million city, 25 million city, completely infected of COVID in just two weeks' time. This was incredible. I mean, crazy. 
And so, of course, then what happens is the numbers of people that die is a result. The good news is yesterday, China released the first time the death toll of COVID in the last month, 60,000 people. So it's not nothing. If you do that like 10 months, it's like almost a million or going to a million. So they released and many people say the data is actually pretty accurate. Of course, it's only hospital data. So people who die at home, that's, that's not included. And there might be other cases that are not included because they didn't recognize it as such. Uh, but that's a global phenomenon. But actually, 60,000 people died in just one month time. So that's the bad news. The good news is that there's actually still a lot of Chinese living now. And that's uh, they all want to go back and do business. And so what you're seeing is that it, it, it went very quickly into a tragedy in just a couple of weeks in December. I mean, the streets in Shanghai were completely empty. In Beijing, everything was empty. Never seen it. It was worse than in lockdown period. Imagine. But today, everything is full again. The subways are full, the restaurants are full, everybody's back. And this is just in one month time. So I'm pretty bullish on, on the recovery, and so are most people watching China for 2023. I mean, the winter will be harsh still because there's going to be uh, still many people that are going to get infected, and in, in specifically in, in the rural areas. And, and then you will see also in the cities that, uh, that after Chinese New Year, you'll see that the Chinese government will, will try to recover the economy. And that's really the focus. The platform economy is big change now because, they, you know, in 2021, they all got fines and, and was uh, really like a, a crackdown on, on the digital economy. Now that's all gone and, and financial is back to life. They're probably going to go IPO maybe in a year from now. So you see a lot of positive news. Gaming industry, Tencent got licenses again. Stock exchange went up again in China. Uh, the small and mid-sized companies are getting uh, money to, to start over again because a lot of bankruptcies, of course, from last year because uh, they couldn't do their business. You see the real estate is getting supported again to actually not uh, go into a complete crisis. So lots and lots of positive news. And specifically, I think in March, early March at the National People's Congress, that's when we will see announcements to really uh, boost the economy again. It's not going to be based on GDP growth this time as much as it was before, but it's expected to be somewhere between 5 and 6% growth in 2023, most of it coming from summer and after the summer. One question. You said, and financial might IPO. Is that something which is now back on the on the plate? Because yes, I mean that was the, that was the, like the iconic moment when we saw the Chinese government stepping in. What has changed that all of a sudden they would now allow an end financials IPO? Well, they created a holding which uh, basically restructured the whole company, and so the loans that they were offering didn't have enough assets on the book to justify that, and now they do. So they have restructured the whole company to allow actually to act like a bank with enough assets on the books to actually provide these loans. And so this is a complete new business model. What it also means is, of course, that the growth of Ant will be limited relative to what was expected back in 2020 when it was halted. So it's probably not going to be at the same valuation, uh, maybe half of what was expected or even less. But that doesn't matter. I think they're going to take about a year to do that. But they got all their fines paid, and the government basically said, you're good to go. And they did the same for Alibaba. So they did the same for a lot of companies in China. So that's why the stock went, went up. It's like, uh, okay, China's done with all their homework and now we can go back to business. And if they would IPO, would they be a Hong Kong-based IPO then? I think, I mean, last time they wanted to have a Hong Kong-Shanghai-based. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I don't know what it will be this time. I mean, there's 
it's probably still going to be a year before they actually uh, announce it because they want to be careful on, on this. Wow, that's something we will watch with interest, absolutely. Yeah, because it's FinTech 2.0 is coming uh, around the corner in China, and so I think it's definitely one to watch. But I was going to talk about FinTech but uh, finance, but also other things. Um, very quickly, I believe that uh, politically, I mean, we've had like three years of, of, of challenges when it comes to China and a lot of debates on whether Beijing is taking over control and so on. What we're seeing now is that since the G20 in Indonesia is that Xi Jinping and all the new elected uh, people at the, the Communist Party are doing a charm offensive towards the whole world. They're trying to say, okay, we, we fought enough in the last years. Uh, let's try and get back to business. And so specifically, if you look at Germany, that uh, Schulz that went to China, France, I mean, everybody was lining up at the G20 to see or talk to Xi Jinping. Only the Canadian uh, prime minister got like a little bit shut out because he leaked something he shouldn't have leaked. And Xi Jinping was a little bit angry. So now we know what Chinese that is angry means. Australia is back into business with China. It's not that they, they've forgotten about everything before. There's still some tensions, but you see that there's openness. And then that is kind of like China is trying to say, okay, let's go back to 2019 and not overdo everything. But their real focus, and that's what many people have missed in the West, is what they're doing with the global South. Specifically, if you look at Saudi Arabia, Qatar, you look at India, you look at Africa, you look at uh, what they're now doing with Afghanistan. I mean, they're doing deals everywhere for billions and billions of dollars. I mean, Philippines, billions of dollars. And this is not with the West. And this is all for long-term contracts, because, Peter, you're talking about this energy uh, and fuel, fossil fuels. Well... That's what China said, we need still 30 years, so we're going to do a 30-year deal. And then they will figure out how to deal with that. So that's a whole new charm offensive, and they do that often in exchange for technology that they have, which is building smart cities in, in all these countries or, or other ways of, of, of digitizing the, the country. So interesting things happening. And so I think Asia is definitely one place to watch because the integration is going to be very big and politically actually supported. But the interesting thing is that there's been a story for a long time about ideology will trump economy. And so that last years, it's all about ideology and Xi Jinping's uh, words and thoughts is going to be more important than everything in the economy. What we're seeing now is that this is a cycle that is changing back again to the economy, but that the ideology is still important for mostly the poor people of China to have actually them be part of the middle class. And so that they're the government will still very much be involved in how to get them included. While the middle class itself that wants to make money, uh, they're going to get more opportunity to still continue doing that. So it's a quite interesting change. What is not happening, and which we all expected, is a decoupling from China. So there's been a, a story for years that we have to decouple. And every week I'm reading news from Apple is creating a new factory in, in, in India, and, and some companies are going back to the US, and then Vietnam is... And if you then look at the data, it's quite interesting to see that China's trade surplus has grown again to almost a trillion dollars just this year. In 2022, it was $878 billion at trade surplus. It grew 7% from the year before. And so the exports are still growing. So even though we all want to leave China, somehow we're still buying more and more from China. And so there are still companies investing. And so you see some companies, specifically German companies, doubling down 
but you see other companies leaving for geopolitical reasons, but the, the total sum of it is actually still positive for China. You have to imagine that you have a trade surplus of the GDP of Belgium every year, and what do you do with these dollars? And that brings me to the next point, is that China is starting to actually de-dollarize a little bit uh, their whole surplus of dollars that they're having by internationalizing the renminbi. Now, nobody wants to hold billions of renminbis because it's uncertain and so on, but the global south is now starting to deal directly with China into their own currency. So what happened in the war in Ukraine has created, or the reaction of the sanctions on the war of Ukraine, has created a lot of countries in the global south to want to deal in their own currency rather than be dependent on the US dollar only because they're afraid of what happened on the sanctions, if that would ever happen to them. And so we're seeing a new uh, BRICS, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, which is adding 14 new countries. And they are now considering together to create a new currency, a BRICS currency. If that would happen, it would be a serious challenge to the US dollars. Now, it's not going to go away any day soon, the US dollar, but it is going to affect how the business is done internationally, specifically on trade. The markets is one of the last thing I want to talk about. And there, what I see is um, what China really needs now is to get the consumption up. Chinese have been saving money for three years, and they need to spend money because otherwise the economy is dependent on exports, which is under challenges with recession or inflation. And then they also don't want to just invest in infrastructure anymore like they did before. So consumption is important. Smart cities is where it's going to be about to make everything and better customer experience. If you have smarter cities, then people, citizens are more happy with the services they get. They hope that they can actually spend more money and do it in a more, in a wise way. You also see the exports because of inflation and the situation globally on the challenges that China's putting everything on smart logistics. Just again, customer experience. I mean, if your logistics is better and faster and cheaper and, and more efficient, well, then you'll deal with China again, and you're not going to go to Vietnam or to India or so on. So that's their Trump card that they're putting out. On productivity is also something they want to focus on in China in 2023. That's specifically, because we were talking about food agriculture, is very important as an industry there, and also manufacturing, of course. That needs to go into industry 4 or 5 or 6.0. I don't know which number we are at right now, but it's really about uh, just getting everything, all these robots that they bought to work, and then the last thing is, is all about sustainability. And, and that is something they're doubling down as well. Like electrical vehicles. I mean, I've been saying this for, for two years. I've written it in my first book that one day the Chinese vehicles, the EVs, will flood our European markets. And just last uh, week at the Brussels Auto Show, you could see seven new Chinese brands uh, available. That's one out of 10 now. Last year, there was nothing. And so this is going fast now. And so China doubled its growth of, of EVs last year to 7 million cars sold last year. And so you're seeing sustainability uh, both on, on the industry, but also on consumer products is really the focus. So I think 2023, in my view, if I could summarize, would be the beginning of the end of the dumb factory of China and the beginning of the smart factory and the green factory of China where we won't just go to China to buy cheap products because the China, actually, if you look at Vietnam, half of the, the growth of Vietnam are Chinese companies that invested in Vietnam to build the products they're not allowed to build in China anymore. And so what you're going to see more and more is, is these smart 
uh, green factories coming out of China. Well, if we want to reach our climate goals, I think we will not be able to decouple from China any day soon. That is my prediction. And so this is what I see very positive coming out of China from an industrial point of view. And then there's a lot of other things like CBDC and metaverse, but I'm not going to start another conversation on that. But uh, metaverse is cool in China. <laughs> we'll be doing a lot more podcasts. So if we have Nextworks uh, customers that want to go back to China, Pascal, wh when is the earliest that we can organize a tour to China? Well, officially, formally, you can organize it tomorrow. Of course, I think uh, my advice would be to wait until after Chinese New Year for sure, but that's that's in a week and, and probably a month later, because uh, then everybody will be returning back to, to the factories and the work and the companies. So I think somewhere early March is definitely possible. But uh, of course, if you look at the news, it, it looks like, uh, like the danger zone. But I think not looking at the news and listening to me is probably a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see who the early, uh, the early birds are, I would say. I had two questions on, on your story, Pascal, and thanks for the overview. It's super cool to have the perspective to go back. But um, one thing that I was wondering about with all the companies of the past coming back, like the Alibaba, the Tencent, Like, what are the new names, you know? What are the, the new post-COVID Chinese companies that we should be looking for? So maybe that's a question. And then on the BRICS story, I mean, is this shifting and, and will that be something that we should envision in the East in a couple of years from now? And, and is that just an outdated social geopolitical routine or something? Or how do you see a meeting like Davos this week in the light of what you just shared with all those other countries? Yeah, no, I, I mean, China has its own Davos as well, so I think that's not a problem. But what is clear for me to answer the second question first is that there's a double world starting to happen. And so we're talking about the Western world more in comparison to the rest of the world. And so what's happening is that many of the organizations outside of Europe or US are starting to set up their own uh, conferences to tackle what Western countries are not tackling as much. And so there's, there's a double world coming, and it's very interesting to look at both because the priorities are often different. The topics are the same. Asking for the new names, I think the big change, and I should have mentioned that probably for 2023, is more focus on B2B, not just the B2C. I mean, B2C is, is of course, I mean, the Alibabas, the Tencent, they're all still there. And there's a lot of new companies in AI and blockchain and a lot of technologies that they're doing really cool stuff. But I think the B2B industry and the collaborative mindset that Chinese have is something to look at. Stories like NIO, the, the car company, working together with CATL, the battery company, mm -hmm. to do this battery swap creation. I think these are the, the cool stories, is how do B2B companies work together in order to actually create something really cool and advanced and, and innovative. So. Lots of names, but I'm not going to give you all the names here now. <laughs> If we go to China, when we go to China, I'll, I'll give you a long list of uh, what I would like to visit and my, my wish list. No worries. Looking forward to that. All right. <laughs> so good start and good expectations for China. But Julie, not so good news for food lovers as we saw that Noma, the best restaurant in the world for several years, decided to close and end their culinary journey. Um, why do you want to talk about this? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's bad news. That's one side of it. Um, there are so many layers on why I want to talk about it. Um, I think, first of all, indeed, it's... Um, has anybody of you ever been there? I, me, personally, I didn't, but anyone? No, who knows I, I was or? outside 
to look at it, but I didn't have a reservation, so that's completely worthless, basically. You, like, but knocked the door and then that. I, I knocked the door and then I <laughs> was kindly asked to leave. Leave. Yeah. <laughs> and so you did. But, uh, I did, yeah. Yeah, they've been around for um, two decades, actually. It's um, it's founded about 20 years ago by a guy called uh, René Retzepi. It's in Copenhagen, uh, and as you said, it's it's not the best restaurant in the world. It has been uh, named five times the best restaurant in the world, and actually you can't be named more than five times the best restaurant in the world. So officially they're, like, done with that. <laughs> the guy was, was I mean... Everywhere, in the news, in the media, the last two decades, he's been knighted by the Queen of Denmark. Uh, he published a book on leadership. So you, you you have a sort of impression like, this is larger than the kitchen, this is larger than the cooking style, this is really a movement and an example of leadership. But that's the legendary positive story, and everybody uh, knows that usually these stories also have a dark side, because a couple of years ago, you really had a backlash on Noma and uh, how they did business. René was really in the New York Times described as a toxic leader. Their interns were not paid. The work ethics were really, really bad. So they became a sort of uh, symbol, I would say, also for what's wrong with the haute cuisine industry, I would say. And then I think this news comes. They quit. Um, and if you read the messaging, it's also about this is not a sustainable business. I mean, it's not about how many liters of diesel do you need <laughs> to cook at Noma, but also just in general to make that business model work. It's just not feasible. This is not smart manufacturing. This is not mass consumption. You have like one restaurant where you have to make your numbers. So the fact that he's opening it up, because maybe uh, it's worth um, telling that a bit more for the ones who haven't seen the news, but it, it's becoming Noma Projects. Um, so basically, they're just saying goodbye to the sort of conventional restaurant model and just having a restaurant and serve the food there. They're also going in, into e-commerce, which makes the accessibility to this style of kitchen, I think, even higher. On the other hand, you see pop-ups. They have done something in, uh, in, in Japan. It's uh, still to come, but in the spring of this year, it's fully booked, but in the spring of this year, they're going to do a pop-up in Kyoto. Um, and, and that's the thing that they will continue to do. Um, and the fascinating thing, besides the leadership uh, and what we can learn from that, I think that's one thing. But the other thing is the, the total turnaround of the business model and just Noma saying, hey, this is not sustainable. If we think about our day after tomorrow as a restaurant, I don't think this is the same thing and we shouldn't be doing what everybody else is doing in this industry to be the best restaurant in the world. Let's just shift that model. And if you read on why just now, eh, why haven't you done this five year or 10 years ago? It's time. René also said it's, it's about COVID. I had time to think this business model through. I had time to think about my frustrations uh, and, and actually do what I love to do with this culture and with this movement of kitchen. So I, I think that's just a symbolic story that we should remember, like um, in whatever business you're in, it's worth looking into it. And how can we be more radical if we, if we hint to the story of Peter? Uh, if we see how the world really works today, maybe we should just find ways to rethink that completely and have that exercise sometimes a bit more often and we'll, won't be left, won't be right, we'll be somewhere in the middle. But I think stories and examples like this really work to do so. And the second thing why I uh, think it's interesting is indeed that leadership story. I mean, the guy obviously didn't do things all very well. But he steps out, he admits it, he says, hey, this is not the guy I want to be anymore, and I made mistakes, and I hope we can prove that uh, Noma is a better brand, and we can do this in a different, more sustainable way. So, um, yeah, I thought in, in a lot of ways this is a remarkable story with a lot of haters, a lot of believers, but I think eventually we, we have to learn from these stories and, and see what really is the middle way there, I think. 
And what is the exact value proposition towards their customers of the Noma project? So they're going to, for example, they work a lot with fermentation. So they're really going to focus on the labo of the kitchen. And then they're going to sell the products that they actually use online. So basically, that's one model that uh, will be new. And then they will work with pop-ups. So instead of having the restaurant open all year long, they will still have periods that you can go and eat there. They haven't communicated when, where, and what now, but you have the Kyoto example. So you can see maybe they're going a little bit more global with that story as well. And the e-commerce part, is that B2B to other chefs or is it to end consumers? Definitely you can subscribe. So basically you can just subscribe and and get the newsletter. So it's definitely B2C as well. I don't know their strategy B2B wise, whether it would be smart, but um, not sure. Could be an interesting uh, model. Yeah, absolutely. All right. But thanks for sharing it. I'm going to go back to Peter. Last time we were in the middle of the FTX collapse. You explained it brilliantly what happened there. Can you share an update now that we're like a month, a month and a half further on what the broader impact on the crypto market is. And maybe as a second point, give us your view on all the layoffs that we're seeing in the tech industry in the last three, four months. Well, I think the collapse of FTX is one of the most significant things that happened in 2022. It's going to be really interesting to watch the legal proceedings of that because Sam Bankman-Fried has been extradited from the Bahamas back to the U.S., What was fascinating is that um, I think in one of the interviews that he gave when the shit was flying around, he said, I am penniless. I don't have a cent anymore. And at one point he said, I don't think if I would put everything together, I even have $100,000 anymore on my bank account. Dini was then extradited to the U.S. And just days after being turned over to the U.S. authorities, he was free again on a bail that was posted of $250 million. I found that an amazing thing. I mean, I remember Jesus with the bread and the fishes, but this is way (laughs) beyond that. I mean, if you don't have $100,000 and a few days later, you can just post $250 million in bail, Wow, that is you know, quite spectacular if you think about it. Anyway, we're going to see the legal proceedings. That is going to be incredible because it's probably the most difficult bankruptcy case ever because you know, this is not some company which folds and has thousands of customers that are claiming that you know, they want their money back. This is now literally millions of customers all over the world. And the fascinating thing is some of these customers actually are saying, "Um, I'm not sure if I want my money back because (laughs) a lot of this was even illegal money. This is crazy. So I can't wait for that legal thing to happen. But the bigger thing here is that the fallout is incredible. And the fallout that we now see is that it's not just the collapse of FTX and taking some companies with it, it's actually putting an enormous tarnish on the entire industry. And when I see this happening, it reminds me very much of something that happened in our country, what, 20 years ago, when we had the collapse of our, you know, technology. Lernout and Houseby. Lernout and Houseby, exactly. A speech recognition software company that was fascinating. And I think in Belgium, they were like the icon of entrepreneurial innovation. And then the Wall Street Journal discovered that there was fraud and the whole thing collapsed. And I think for 
a decade in our country, there was like this doom and gloom of Leonard and Houseby, where if you wanted to start a new technology business, people were so afraid to get into that because they got their fingers burned because of Leonard and Houseby that for almost a decade, it was like an atomic cloud that was still hanging over that industry. And I think we're now seeing something very similar with FTX because you know, honestly, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the concepts, a lot of the innovation that happened in crypto and blockchain is still very relevant today. But as a result of that collapse, VCs don't want to touch this anymore because they have been burned so badly. So many people out there in the innovation community, I think it was very fashionable to use blockchain in the beginning of 2022. But by the end of 2020, if you use blockchain in one of your pitches, it's probably scored as a negative thing. And I think that is very unfortunate. I think that's the, the first thing that you see. The second thing, and that is the bigger picture, we talked about it last time as well. We had a lot of layoffs coming in the tech sector. Mm-hmm. What we're now seeing is that the venture capital industry is seeing 2023 as a transition year. They're basically just really, really cautious in putting money into new investments. And the reason is that, you know, we still have this rising interest rates. I mean, it's very clear that the inflation hasn't been curbed by the interest rates yet. So the central banks are probably going to keep increasing during this year their interest rates. And that is extremely bad news for venture capital because high interest rates means that there are alternatives to venture capital. If you have a very low interest rate, then venture capital is the best way to put your money because you can make big bets, which could pay off really, really handsomely. But if there are alternatives, venture capital becomes less attractive. And that is what is happening right now. It's not just the fact that people don't believe in technology anymore. I mean, we're consuming more technology every single day. But the whole element of financing is changing. And of course, changing really hard in a sector like blockchain. But overall, I think we're going to see a really cautious year. If you have a startup and you have funding, well, you're being told by your VC to basically just be as frugal as you can, to basically you know spend as less money as you can because you need to do as long as you can with the money that you have. And if you're out there with a new project, it's going to be much more difficult to find money than it was 12 months ago. So it's an interesting landscape. And I think we're going to see a transition winter period But in the world of blockchain and crypto, it is a really, really bad situation. Interesting, because I I think this could, Peter, this could actually be an opportunity for Asia in general, which have had a lot less impact on the financial situation or instability and inflation in general. Interest rates in many countries are still much lower in Asia. But you also see that uh, specifically with crypto that was banned in China and that still other countries were little bit careful about at some points and blockchain the favorite technology specifically for logistics and so on you could actually see this an opportunity 2023 for asia to double down on on what the west is actually reducing or america and europe and so this could be an interesting specifically in the fintech world i mean you see in singapore a lot of things happening in india they're they're creating this whole digital platform which is a money platform i mean it's amazing to see how far ahead they are and the same in China, of course, uh, with Ant Financial coming back. So I think maybe the finance world is going to look, and maybe investors are going to look more to Asia for the next year, 2020, uh, this year, 2023. 
Yeah, interesting. And, 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 and I think um, we've already seen, of course, you know, that there was so much financial innovation happening over the last couple of years in Asia. If they're going to be able to double down as a result of that Western VC uh, crisis at this moment, then I think we're going to see some really big shifts. Yeah. Uh, let, let's continue about the technology part, because we all know that one of the more popular technologies is, is TikTok, especially among the younger generation. But in the last few weeks, there's been quite some debate about TikTok, especially in the U.S. Uh, a lot of warnings from the government came out that people that work for the government should delete TikTok from their phone, delete their account, throw that phone away, and then get a new phone and never go back to that platform. And now, uh, Pascal, this is something that I would like to have your opinion on. Washington is looking to ban TikTok in the U.S. Uh, how do you look at that? Yeah, it's, it's been ongoing since Trump for a long time that they want to somehow ban TikTok. But it's been very recently coming back again. And the U.S. government, as you said, has just approved a ban of the use of TikTok on federal government devices. Not that government people should be on TikTok while they're working, but uh, in any case, they're, they're not allowed to do that. Or at least the federal government has said you can ban TikTok on government devices. And many states have implemented that already. Okay. Yeah. And so this is something that is coming back and has become a real political debate with the election coming up in 2024. The Republicans are really taking a hard stance on China and banning TikTok is completely into their area because that shows that they're strong on China. And I think it's quite interesting because the reason that Trump failed to get this through, I don't know if you know what that was, but actually through the courts, the reason that it didn't happen was because the freedom of speech could not actually be considered as being a, one of the amendments of the, of the Constitution was actually violated by blocking TikTok, which is quite interesting to see because uh, the TikTok is considered from Washington uh, onwards a Chinese company. ByteDance is the parent company who visited it a couple of times in Beijing. And so they see this as a potential national security risk for the Communist Party or the Chinese government to get access of data of U.S. users. And there's about 2 billion monthly active users of TikTok these days and 100 million in the U.S. alone. So one out of three people in the U.S. is actually using TikTok, which is, is an incredible amount of people and an incredible amount of data that, of course, Washington is worried that uh, the Chinese government would get access about. And so banning TikTok has been the new direction that all the Republicans are starting one after the other to say, we have to ban this. This is too dangerous for national security reasons. Now, of course, a lot of Chinese and a lot of people watching this, even tech experts and so on, have said this is complete untrue, that it's a national security risk, but it's still happening, this whole story. And the reason that they say it's untrue is because under Trump, one of the main things that Trump asked to do was actually to put all the data in the U.S., and so TikTok did this in the last years. They put everything on Amazon Cloud, Microsoft. I mean, it's all U.S. companies, Google. That's where they store all the data. And Oracle is used for all the communication. And, and, and so there's zero thing outside of China. Only Singapore has a little bit, but that's considered to be okay for Washington. So that's not the issue. So it shouldn't be a national security risk. And I think many people feel that this is not national security risk, are talking about the fact that this is purely an economic issue because TikTok is becoming more popular than most social media in the US. And it's not just popular with people. I mean, there's, there's many, many users, but it's also popular with businesses. And so if TikTok would be banned, 
I mean, the Generation Z would, would go crazy, and, and I'm not sure that we could prevent that actually chaos, and they have enough chaos in Washington already <laughs> or in, in the U.S., but adding all the Gen Z to say we, we don't agree with these politicians anymore, I think that's a big thing, but it's also the businesses. I mean, hundreds of thousands of companies are these days dependent on some way of reaching their customers through TikTok. And so if you are going to affect all these businesses, that is going to be a huge impact on society. And the other thing that is, is often talked about is the fact that TikTok, and this is interesting, that a Chinese company that came into, into the US with social media has become so popular that it's starting to actually become a social and cultural identity of many people, meaning that the social and cultural values of a nation like the US are being defined somehow by a company that is started in China. And so this is where everything around food, around fashion, around music, everything is starting very often on TikTok. New trends are starting there. So ban that. That is not a good idea for the evolution of the American identity, but I'm not going to go into that direction. What, of course, many people are saying is that what the government really wants is actually to, TikTok would sell the company, sell the assets or sell the IP to an American company. And that proves to many Chinese, like you see, it's an economic issue. It's about competition because TikTok is fighting now with Meta and with Amazon. And so this is nothing to do with national security risk. This is not Huawei with infrastructure. It's about teenagers and so on. So that's the new direction. So Peter, you had a question? No, I remember, I think it was about two years ago, we had a very similar thing in one of the last Trump administration backlashes against China that he was trying to get the US assets of TikTok to be sold. And I remember yes. Walmart was looking into it, Microsoft was looking into it, yep. Oracle was looking into it. And I thought, what the hell, you know? But I mean, is this something which would now be a realistic scenario that they are reopening again? Yeah, of course. And that's the whole storyline because some of these uh, Republicans, uh, congressmen have already been saying, yeah, but if you would uh, sell the assets to a US company, then it's fine, then there's no national security risk, as if that US company cannot access the data and do other things with it as well. So suddenly it's no national security risk anymore, which of course confirms many people's belief that it's just to do with economics and just to do with the fact. And that's what you hear very often from Chinese is that, well, the problem is that the government cannot access TikTok data. That's the issue. They can do that with, with Meta, probably, they can probably do that with Twitter. I mean, I think Elon Musk proved that they actually got a backdoor. And so this is where it's all about, according to many Chinese. So it's a very interesting debate. But I think it's an important moment in time, because if with the election coming up, this would really escalate and somehow TikTok would have to leave the country or have to sell its assets, it means that the politicians actually have somehow won from the people and from the businesses. And so they're willing to take a hit on the businesses, willing to take a hit on their population, on the, on the people, the consumers, to actually just get their way, uh, which many congressmen even say that it's not national security risk, even within the US. So it's very interesting debate because this could lead to a very different world where if that would continue, if the ban would happen on the, on the, on the whole US level, that ultimately, this could be done on electrical vehicles. It could be done on everything coming from China. And then we will have to, consumers, have to buy products that maybe are more expensive 
like we've seen Ericsson being bought instead of Huawei. It's more expensive, but that's not our problem. It's a problem of companies like Proximus in Belgium or British Telecom. It's not our problem. But when it's about an electrical vehicle, it is our problem. It's a problem of citizens. And so I see this happening, but it's going to be very interesting to follow because if it's, again, just like Trump, not going to get passed, then I think the tsunami of Chinese products is just going to continue and citizens are not going to be able to stop it. The other interesting thing is that TikTok has been able to prove that actually they have no Chinese ownership at all, but also no censorship. If you go on TikTok and you type anything related to Uyghurs in Xinjiang, you will find anything you want, even conspiracy theories. Everything is on there. So it's very hard for politicians, and that's the real problem to ban it. It's very hard to find something to say TikTok is different from the other companies like Meta or like Twitter or whatever, except the fact that they have originally been based or they were uh, they started originally in Beijing. And otherwise, it's complete American management these days. And the nice thing that I also found is that today, most of the politicians in the US are using TikTok to reach their constituencies, so, so to reach the people. So... If they can't get that, that's another problem that they need to figure out. So I have the solution for all this. If Washington actually bans TikTok uh, and says you have to sell TikTok to a company that is not part of China, I think they should sell it to a European company. It would solve our European problem of not having a social media that is global. And if they do that, then basically we would be happy in Europe and TikTok might be more happy than if they have to sell it to Washington. So let, let's do a little brainstorm. Which European company would actually be a good fit for TikTok? Who, who would be able to buy that? No? Nobody saw that question coming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yet, but I think talk to European Commission and then maybe with some big company. But yeah, I, I think indeed a, 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 probably a software company. I don't know. I don't media think it's company. a software company. It's more of a media yeah. company, the, right? The BBC. A media company, yeah. The BBC, that China will not like the BBC to buy, to buy TikTok. DPG China and the BBC Belgium, are yeah. not very good friends. But yes, I think a media, a media, media company, company or advertisement company could be very, very interesting. But I think that could be, uh, I mean, it's a crazy idea. But I think TikTok would rather sell it to a European than to sell it to a US company. And it would solve our problem. A company like Vivendi, for example. Mm. I mean, I remember Vivendi was one of those European media companies that was, you know, one of the first Internet 1.0 hypes. Yeah, it was one of those things there. We thought maybe, yeah, if, if one company would buy it, maybe Vivendi. I got a question last week from a professor from London. Are you optimistic about the future of Europe? Well, this conversation didn't make me more optimistic, I must <laughs> say. It's like the question and nobody's like blank. No, not that company, not that company, not that company. I'm, I'm sure we all got three companies in our head, but just nah, no, not that one. <laughs> so we have work to do, I guess. What would the value be if you wanted to buy TikTok? I don't know, but I remember, um, I think it was two years ago, they were talking about 100 billion, so I don't know how much it is now. Peter is uh, checking his wallet. Taking out your checkbook, Peter? He's taking out his famous wallet. It's it's also something that if you want to think about companies that could take it over, you have to think about companies that would be capable of shelling out such a huge amount of money. I mean, and I'm not yeah. sure if you would carve if you would carve out just the U.S. assets, you know, how you would value that as well. Anyway, Stephen, you might be able to uh, to share that with us in a few months from now. It's, it's not 100% confirmed yet, but it's very likely we'll be visiting TikTok in the U.S. in March in LA, 
And as we've been there in China, I'm pretty curious that you bring that back. Like, what are the differences? Same company, but in the different continents. Like, what can we take away from that? That would be really nice, Stephen, if you bring that back to us. Yeah, absolutely. I saw it this morning that we're very close to having a meeting at TikTok. For our customer experience tour in, in LA, we're going in March. We still have a few seats available. So if you want to hear this story live from the real people in the field, just drop us a note. And it would be fantastic if you could join me to LA in early March and visit the TikTok offices there in California. I'm going to come to you, Julie, for the last topic of this Radar episode. Uh, it's one that I think is, is really interesting. Uh, it's Shopify, the big e-commerce platform, a Canadian company, is trying to increase its productivity. They've been suffering. Their stock price got hit really bad last year. And one of the ideas that they have to increase productivity is cut down on more than two people meetings. And you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, exactly. This was the headline that was hunting me basically in the beginning of the years. Like everywhere, every single news uh, channel was reporting on this. And I was like, what's the fuzz about? Maybe one thing that I smiled when Pascal was talking about it, like we're saying, yeah, you shouldn't be using TikTok at work. Well, I would like to debate that maybe, but um, this goes even, even further. You can't have meetings at Shopify. So that goes a bit bolder, I would say. And as you said, it's a Canadian company. So um, that as such, it's, it's not the typical Silicon Valley founded company. And basically, if you want to sell something online, imagine Stephen wants to sell his Disney collection of merchandising goodies and he wants to make a business out of that. Well, Shopify would be his best, best friend. They have 1.7 million businesses empowered with their platform in 175 countries. So that gives you an idea of their operational uh, space. And they also want to be sort of the antidote of the big central players, the Amazons of this world, um, with really empowering also these small stories. I imagine Noma Projects will use Shopify to sell their goods, for example. So I think there, there's a thing with their business model and, and nurturing that creativity and not centralizing all of that. And if you look at their decision now to cut those meetings, I think that's similar. It's like, let's make sure that some space for creativity and chaos is still happening in our company so that new things come to life. And their, um, their CEO, Toby, Toby Lutke, is a German guy, uh, and he's very passionate about the topic. Like, I love his quote, how he said, in 100 years from now, we're going to be so embarrassed with our companies, with the way we did things. Um, and his personal mission is to make sure that Shopify is a company that just did a little bit better. He said, like, if we look at how we do business and do those meetings and all the practices and the habits and the routines, it's crazy. But let's do a few things that make me a little less ashamed of what we're doing. So basically, they just did that. Control-Alt-Delete. So every Shopify employee came back uh, after New Year's, big party, and then 10,000 calendar events were just erased from their calendars. They're not allowed uh, for two weeks to add them back. Um, that's 77,000 hours of meetings. Wow. So yeah, I kind of like that. Also from a management kind of perspective, they probably already said to everybody, yeah, lower down on your meetings. But then it's like, nope, let's just make a move. And of course, these meetings will, I mean, reappear and meetings will be added again. But just that action to, hey, let's let's do this, try this and see what happens. It's what leadership should do is, is to see, hey, this is what I think is important and what we should be um, doing in our company. To compare that with, uh, I would say, the coder in him, uh, he said, meetings are usually a bug. You can just look at the root cause of the meeting and then you can solve it. So also, the, it's a really nice guy. You should, uh, if you want to follow him, uh, really recommend it because how he looks at businesses is, is pretty not central and looking at 
how all things are done, and I think it's pretty pretty inspirational. And also, it's true. Uh, if you look at the stats from productivity, you mentioned it, Stephen. It's everywhere, like looking into productivity and are we productive still? The numbers of collaborative work also state that since COVID, the time we spend on video calls, instant messaging, TikTok maybe, uh, the phone, it um, has risen 50% of the past decades. And it means that 85% of our time were in these kind of things. So I think it's, it's, it's a good move to say, hey, let's, uh, let's be mindful of that. And that will be enough uh, and way more productive than all the surveillance controls software that is being used by companies now to see what people are doing. Let's just uh, use common sense and, and see what we do with our time and do things like this. So I like the cool. story. I love the story. Thanks for sharing that. With that, I suggest we call it a day and close off this first Radar episode of 2023. I would like to thank Peter, Julie and Pascal for being here. I would like to thank you for listening to our podcast. So thank you very much and we'll hear you again in a couple of weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.